This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Robert Lewis. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is just over 10 years, Robert will correct me if I'm wrong, since now I remember it vividly, it's a sort of almost a Kennedy moment, when the news came on one Friday night, I think in July 2003, that the body of Dr. David Kelly had been found near his home in Oxfordshire, and that set up a whole raft of events, no doubt, which we'll be talking about in the next hour or so. Dark Actors, the book which Robert has written about the whole life and death of Dr. Kelly is one of those books that whatever illusions you may have left about the principal nature of politicians and the benevolent workings of the state are likely to be lost by the end of the book I'm afraid. It's in the best sense of the word deeply depressing Robert when one, when one looks at the behaviour of people that you've exposed yes. in your book, it kind of... I'm expecting a lot of summer sales, holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that, rather than a sort yeah. of midwinter, rather than a Christmas presents. But, I mean, you were, you were no more than a schoolboy, presumably, when this all happened ten years ago. I was, I was a slightly mature student uh, halfway at Cardigan Bay at Aberystwyth University. Right, so you... At, at Aberystwyth University was where I was. So do you remember your reaction when you heard the news that Friday night? Yes, I do. I remember my reaction. And more than, more than that, I remember, um, I remember the drive to war. I remember mm. a drive to war. I was, I was a 23-year-old humanities undergraduate in mid-Wales. And, I, and I, I felt convinced, maybe this was precociousness, but I felt convinced that there were no WMD in Iraq. And um, maybe that's precociousness, but I think half the country felt exactly the same thing. And then we were frozen under that um, apprehension while we slid into a, a war. And, um, and when David Kelly surfaced, when he, when he briefly surfaced, and it, it seemed to, I think, to half the country, or maybe more, that we finally had a chance or a hope for some truth, for, for some exposure of what had been a, a sordid and disingenuous mechanism. And very, very, very suddenly, um, very quickly, he was gone. He was taken from us. With, Two days after he appeared on our television screens, he walked into a, a thicket uh, about 3,000 yards from his home and he killed himself. And what I was deeply haunted on that day and I've been deeply haunted since. And I think all of us, even however we feel, whatever we might conclude about David Kelly, David Kelly matters to all of us because we, we understand that we lost something when he died. Now, however, Whatever your opinions on the Iraq war might be, whatever your opinions on politicians might be, and whatever your opinions on the media or the intelligence community, when David Kelly died, uh, we lost uh, not just a hope for the truth, however feeble that hope was, but we lost our faith in ourselves as well. We lost our faith in ourselves as a country and in the institutions of our country. And that faith hasn't healed. And if we're going to regain that faith, and restore the body politic, then I imagine, although it seems, it may seem trivial, I imagine if we're going to restore that, we will need to understand why David Kelly 
walked up Harrowdown Hill. Mm -hmm. Could I ask you to give a brief introduction to the book? Well, uh, I am a, um, I'm a crime writer, so I write crime fiction. That's my previous output. And um, I approach this, I'm, I approach this as a crime writer. I approach this like, probably like half the country um, would have, in that I thought I was closing on a crime. I thought I had very strong suspicions, uh, uninformed though they were, that David Kelly uh, had been murdered, which to the other half of the country makes me a lunatic. But I, I maintain that those doubts, for, to hold those doubts throughout 2003, 2004, 2005, to hold those doubts is not unreasonable. You can be forgiven for holding those doubts. And, and I thought I would be describing, I suppose in essence, I thought, I, I suppose I might be describing an Oxfordshire murder mystery. Um, and then as I neared on the truth, the simplicity of that evaporated. And uh, I realized that the truth was something far more complicated and the crime was something far, far bigger than just what had happened uh, to a, to a um, quiet civil servant. Um, and Kelly is, I realized actually that the thing, problem with Kelly is that his end, his death, has totally eclipsed his life. So we don't understand who Kelly was and we don't understand the world in, in which he worked. Kelly was himself habitually a quiet sort of background figure. If Kelly was here today, he would be in the back row and he, we wouldn't hear from him. And that's what he was like at arms conferences. Um, and it, if he disagreed with somebody, he'd quietly come up to them afterwards and give them a nudge on the shoulder and tell them, that's, that's not right. And he was a very much a background operator. And um, so it was difficult to find him, to find him, because he was publicly reticent, despite the fact, despite his several media appearances, he was a publicly reticent man. And also he worked in a, uh, in, in a you know, in a, in a closeted, closed, secretive world. But Kelly is from Pontypridd. He was born in Pontypridd in 1945, which is a town in the South Wales Valleys, and my father is from the South Wales Valleys, and I'm from South Wales. So I felt that if I was going to do this book a, a decent job of work, I would have to abandon my conclusions, I would have to abandon my assumptions, and I would have to abandon the end, and as Dylan Thomas said, I would have to begin at the beginning. And if I could find his origins, if I could find his beginnings, and if I could chart him through as a biographer, then a picture of the man and his career would build up that wouldn't be biased by the final few days of his life. And, uh, and thus I, it all started in, in Pontypridd, where he has an extended family, albeit uh, an estranged but extended family, who were happy to talk to me, uh, unlike his immediate family, who have never spoken to anyone. And, um, and from that, I followed him from, from, the, from the boys' school grammar in Pontypridd. I followed him through academia. I followed his, his civilian life as a scientist and, and a virologist at Oxford, and then his Cold War transfer to Portendown, where he became instantly, at a swoop, Britain's senior biological warfare scientist. Uh, and then, then from there, his transfer from the defense sector into the world of intelligence, uh, which happened in uh, around about um, 1989. Uh, and from then on, um, up until the, you know, the tumultuous 
uh, final weeks and months of his life, which were a, a you know, which which took place a year off his retirement. And having having charted that, what I discovered was a man who was completely different to the man we were asked to believe in in 2003, because the man who appeared on our television screens briefly in 2003 uh, has been described as a you know in his appearance in his televised appearance before the parliamentary foreign affairs select committee has been described as a, a sort of a besieged beleaguered meek bespectacled bespectacled bearded boffin a meek disgruntled civil servant uh, you know and no more than that uh, and thus his grilling before the committee was the was the uh, held to be the trigger for his suicide and the man I discovered uh, was Britain's leading expert on biological weapons and biological weapons in Iraq and biological weapons in the Soviet Union um, a very deliberate cautious hard-edged expert man who was used to enormous amounts of pressure who'd, who'd been followed and uh, monitored by enemy intelligence agencies for months on end he'd worked for months on end in foreign regimes and was not, I don't think, bothered over much by talking to a load of MPs from the Shires for one afternoon. I, I, that's, uh, that, that, that was, you know, that, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a terrible ordeal for David Kelly. And, uh, and we know it, it wasn't that bad because um, the same week he talked to the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is, a, which is a, uh, another parliamentary committee, but that is entirely secretive. And uh, his interview, he, you know, his grilling by the Intelligence and Security Committee is, was transcripted. And it was never supposed to reach the public. But because of his death, it was released to the public. And the Kelly that spoke at, to the Intelligence and Security Committee, you can read it in the transcription, is an entirely different man to the nervous man that spoke to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. The man that spoke to the Intelligence and Security Committee in an environment where he thought he would be unobserved and no one would find out, is a, is a confident, centred man who answers questions directly and without evasion. And the man who appears at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee is a, is a grey man, I think perhaps deliberately a grey man, who, has, uh, who perhaps has affected a persona as a, a defence. And, um, and we shouldn't be... Uh, we, sh we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be distracted by the brief impression we had uh, of Kelly for perhaps, you know, in his 45-minute grilling by the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, he was, a, he was a different persona to that. And I think, I think actually in discovering that, um, you know, that, that was one of the most rewarding aspects of, of the book for me to, to close upon. You know, I, I didn't write this book with the aim of... Uh, proving a conspiracy theory. I, I, this book was an earnest investigation and I'd said about it as a biographer and that's when I found that I'd reached a Kelly that seemed real and that I could believe in. I felt that I was a good way on my way to achieving what I'd mm -hmm. set out to do. Now remind us, if you will, about events leading up to his death, which as I said, I think took place on the Friday afternoon. He'd been, as you say, in front of the the Foreign Affairs Select Committee was that on the Tuesday of that week. Yes, yeah, so that was. A, I think I, I may have this the wrong way around, but I believe it was the Foreign Affairs Select Committee on the Tuesday, the ISC on the Wednesday, okay. Thursday night. Um, Thursday night he returned to Southmore, um, and um, 
Friday was the day he went for his walk. I, I'm, not, I'm unsure, actually, right now, I might have omitted a day. Right. There. But when did he talk? Because he talked to Susan Watts of Newsnight, mm. am I right? And he also talked to Andrew Gilligan on Today. And it was the, Gill the first, I think the, was it the first report that Gilligan made on that Today program that sort of started the whole ball rolling. Now, had that happened previous to the week that he oh, was yes. talking that, that about? Oh, yes, that had So that was sort of in the air at, mm. at the time. But when was he identified as the source for what was in effect, if I, if I understand it correctly, and do correct me if I'm wrong, he was saying that the, the government all along knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction mm. in Iraq. That was the gist of mm. what he told those two BBC journalists. So when did the kind of fuss start? When did the brouhaha begin in this process? Well, um, from Downing Street's perspective, it started the morning Gilligan ran with the story on mm. the Today programme. It's quite interesting that both Gilligan and Susan Watts had this interview from Kelly, and they had it uh, in their da they had it in their drawers basically for a for a number of days. Uh, they didn't realise. It's strange that they didn't seem to realise the story they'd been given. So they sat on it for a while, and eventually Gilligan reported it on the Today programme. And as soon as it went out, um, Downing Street, so the Downing Street press office went ballistic. Mm. So you had an instant es escalation from that point of view. Um, um, and Watts he'd spoken to, I think, before Gilligan. But in speaking to Watts, I'd, I don't think he'd, um, he hadn't mentioned uh, Alistair Campbell. Uh, he'd, in, the, the Watts interview was, um, was slightly less critical of the government than, um, than the Gilligan interview, though they both fundamentally raised the same point, that um, the, the government knew the claims were wrong. And, um, and uh, what's quite interesting is... Well, what was quite interesting to me was that we, we don't know why he suddenly changed his tune. Um, in fact, he changed his tune twice. Mm. He gave two anonymous off-the-record briefings to Susan Watts and Andrew Gilligan. And then Gilligan reports, and it goes ballistic. And he volunteers himself. Um, a couple of days later, he volunteers himself to his official employers, the Ministry of Defence, because he says... I, sp I spoke to this person and I think I'm the anonymous source for this story and I think I'm being misreported. Now I don't know if there are any journalists in here today um, but I spoke, I know a few journalists and I've spoken to four professors of journalism about this and there's only one instance in the history of journalism that I'm aware of where a man comes forward and says I'm the anonymous source for this story and I was misreported. That's only once. And that's David Kelly to Andrew Gilligan after Downing Street has gone ballistic. Mm. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's um, reasonable to suspect there may have been pressures applied at that stage to David Kelly. But um, because it's a, it's a very interesting step to take. Normally, you just let the interview stand. But clearly, behind the scenes, there was incredible pressure being applied to have the story killed. I don't know why... I don't know why David Kelly came forward. It makes no sense for him to have come forward. It's, um, it's a complete anomaly in the history of journalism. And what's even more interesting is why he gave those interviews to um, Susan Watts and Andrew Gilligan in the first place. They're his only real two... Well, no, actually, he gives several interviews post-invasion, but po post-invasion, those are two standout interviews where he starts to depart 
from, um, starts to depart from his line, or his previous line. I mean, only weeks previous he'd been telling Susan Watts that they were mobile biological weapons labs in Iraq. He told Susan Watts they were 90%, he was 90% certain they were there. And these claims, these, these claims to any expert observer um, of Iraq were ridiculous to begin with. And um, he tells Susan Watts that he now thinks he's only about 30 to 20% sure that there are mobile biological weapons labs, and, um, and the government knew that. But the trigger, for, and I, I never really got onto the bottom of this, the, the trigger for why he just suddenly decides to start talking was a trip he tried to make to Iraq um, in, in May, where he, he, he went to Iraq, and Hutton was, Lord Hutton was told that he had a problem with his visa, and he thus had to... Um, he thus had to return. He was returned because he had a visa problem and for paperwork issues he came back to the UK. He was going out there to join the Iraq Survey Group. A lot of people in the Ministry of Defence thought he was going to be the British leader on the Iraq Survey Group. And instead he had a visa problem and he came back. And um, according to Hutton that's what happened. But according to his daughters, when he was in Kuwait, he was handcuffed, searched, searched um, restrained and then he was escorted out of the country. So he was very, very heavy-handed and serious, which doesn't sound like a visa problem to me. And Hutton was told that Brigadier John Deverell was with him, who was the British head of the Iraq Survey Group, and I met Brigadier John Deverell, and he was kind enough to talk to me. And I said, were you with David Kelly when he went into Kuwait? And Brigadier John, John, John Deverell said, no, I wasn't with him. I was in, um, I was in Bahrain. He, he was in and out on his own. And then uh, I spoke to another person who's a... Naval intelligence officer. Uh, <clears throat> well, actually, I spoke to a former defence attaché as well. I spoke to a former defence attaché and said, um, "What happened to Kelly?" Um, uh, because I've—he he doesn't have a visa problem. The response isn't that of a visa problem. Um, Kuwait is an ally. We're at war. You've got a status of forces agreement that ensures free passage for people in and out of Kuwait. So, what happened to David Kelly? And this guy said. He was drunk. He turned up drunk, and uh, they don't like that. It's a Muslim state, so they um, they threw him out. They arrested him and threw him out. And I I had no response to that, but um, David Kelly didn't drink. He didn't drink for religious reasons. He didn't drink for medical reasons. No one had seen him drunk for years. His flight out there was on an Arabic airline that doesn't serve alcohol. And according to the, the, the timings of his um, entrance, you know, that he entered into his diary, according to the flights in and out of the country, he really had no time to do anything there. He was straight in and then booted almost straight out from an airport about five hours' drive away. And um, finally, I spoke to a naval intelligence officer who was also part of the Iraq survey group who said, well, I never met David, but he wasn't pissed and it wasn't a visa problem. And if there's one person you can't believe in any of this, it's the Ministry of Defence. And only after that, only, I mean, you know, it was suggested to me that he was on some sort of intelligence operations in going out there. And only after Kuwait, only after this bizarre incident in Kuwait, does he, does he come back and he, does he start talking off the record to journalists about the WMD aren't there. So that's a, that's a pivot. I mean, that's as to whether or not anyone will ever find out what happened there, that Kuwait is, Kuwait is the pivot. So he had gone out there on his own 
volition or his, off his own bat or whatever it was. He wasn't there as part of, as far as we know, he wasn't part of a team. Officially, he'd gone out there. Out, uh, officially, he'd gone out, out there off his own bat. And were the hostilities still going on in Iraq at this point? No, Iraq, Iraq was reasonably quiet at this right. point because it was under It was the very early days of the occupation, mm. and thus the insurgency and the resistance had not mounted. So it was a, it was a, you know, it was a freer time to inspect possible or suspected WMD sites than it than it was at you know any time in 2004. So, so we have no idea the reason behind his trip to Kuwait then. No, no, but I, I, I mean, I. I believe it was certainly intelligence-related. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, he, 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 this is the thing about Kelly, is he officially reported to the defense intelligence staff, officially worked for the Ministry of Defense. But if you read his ISC transcripts, and if you talk to other people, and if you talk, you know, I've spoken to one of his old school friends from Ponce Prix, he told the people that he knew that he had multiple bosses. He, I mean, I, if there was one thing Hutton was absolutely very clear to establish, it was that David Kelly worked for the Ministry of Defense. And if you listen to David Kelly at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, if the one thing he's very keen to establish there is that he works for the Ministry of Defence and that if the, if the politicians want to know who he spoke to, they should make that request of the Ministry of Defence. It's completely unambiguous. But he also worked for the Foreign Office. Mm -hmm. He worked for the Foreign Office in its um, arms control department and he also, as he told the Intelligence Select Committee, routinely met with um, the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, over rocking himself. Over the rocking himself. Mm -hmm. so, so he's deeply, and not only that, he's got, he's had, ever since UNSCOM, he's had regular meetings and relations with the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. State Department. So he's, um... He's absolutely in the thick of things, Yes, isn't he? he is. He's very much, he's very much in the thick of it. And, um, during Hutton, the narrative is established that he was just an analyst mm -hmm. for the Defense Intelligence staff, and, and he wasn't. And all his intelligence activities have been airbrushed out of Hutton. Um, he was, uh, he was in, he was in, um... Geneva uh, a couple of months before the invasion um, and I, I, I don't think his I don't think his family believe he was in Geneva but because they, they questioned it they questioned the diary the diary entry at Hutton but David Bruce David Bruchia, who's an arms control expert for the Foreign Office met told Hutton that he met David Kelly in Geneva when Gen when he was supposedly in America um, and um, Hutton concluded obliquely that David Bruchia must have misremembered this. But um, at the same time, you know, this, at the same time Kelly was in Geneva, so were senior Iraqis. And at the same time senior Iraqis were in Geneva, senior Iraqis were also in Vienna. And Kelly's colleague on the State Department and his colleague from UNSCOM was a man called Charles Dwalfer, who routinely met with senior Iraqis, because Geneva and Vienna were the only places in the world where senior Iraqis could turn up under diplomatic cover. So. Uh, Often they made defection approaches or they would offer inducements and things like that. And it seems extremely likely to me that Kelly was in Geneva for the same reason that Dwalfa was in Vienna, which was to meet with senior Iraqis. Um, and that, uh, that, that's been airbrushed out of, uh, of Hutton as well. There's a backstory, there is a huge backstory to all of this, which, which I was only able to skate over. But the reality of Iraqi M WMD has been hidden wherever it could surface. Uh, and um, and uh, in that obscurity, you know, is also the story of Kelly's life. Mm. So rather than this innocent, uh, shy, retiring boffin character, you know, more used to living in a, a laboratory than anything else, this is a man who's that steeped in 
the Ministry of Defense, the Secret Service, the CIA. As you yes. say, he's a, he's a sort of person who pops up everywhere. Well, yes. not everywhere, but certainly in, in Interesting the heart of, of government and security services. Mm. And of course, even when he was a boffin working in a lab, mm -hmm. he, wasn't, he wasn't working in a physics lab. No. He was working in a highly uh, dangerous, high containment laboratory for working on dangerous pathogens. He hammered vaccines into mm. his arm. He worked on genetically engineered smallpox. He worked on, he worked on genetically engineered anthrax, other variants, other potential BW agents. Uh, and that's not... Um, you know, that's not theoretical. Mm. Now, you say in your book that when he got up, this what turned out to be his last day of life, he was in a good mood. I don't know how you know this. Did, did, they, did his wife or his daughters say this, that he seemed to be a, a very happy man back at work? I think, you know, he was getting on with stuff. Uh, his no. wife noticed nothing unusual it was, about uh, him. It's, it's, it's his widow's testimony to Hutton, mm -hmm. where she says that he was in a you know, reasonably, you know, Optimistic frame of mood till about mid morning, um, and and his and of course his his life had the, the appearance of something that was returning to normal routine, I suppose, mm. because he was home again. The press went on his doorstep, um, and he was back into his daily routine of working in his study and getting on with his work and the emails, the dozens of emails that he sent to um, colleagues, generally uh, seemed to uh, have been written by someone who is happy to get back to work and is relishing the prospect of getting of getting back into the thick of it so that 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 to all extents and purposes appears to be the Kelly that, that woke up on the last day of his life now I don't want you to <laughs> sort of a, I don't want to reveal the ending to this so let's leave that aside for the moment but his body is discovered later that afternoon uh, three policemen turn up but only two are identified, mm. and the body, of course, quite against all custom and practice, hasn't been moved, we think, to judge by different accounts by various passers-by or people who were helping find, because by then the sort of hue and cry had, had been aroused in the village, hadn't it? So people were mm. going out looking for Dr. Kelly. Um, and this is where things begin to go awry between the official version and what you've been able to discover. So take us through the events after the discovery of the body. Well, there are a lot of uh, incongruities and mm -hmm. oddities and anomalies about the discovery uh, of the body and forensic anomalies about the discovery of the body. And, um, and th these have been well documented by, by, um, by, by people who, like myself, have been troubled um, by, by the notion that he may have, you know, he may have been murdered. Um, and the, and the, the, it's a long list. You know, I don't know where to start. Yes. It's a, it's, um, I mean, the, 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 the first one is the absence of fingerprints on the knife is something that people often raise. There's a, absolutely no fingerprints on the knife. That, that came as a response to a freedom of information request. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the campaigner that, um, that made that request, but it came as a response to an FOI request. And, um, uh, and before, it's, it's very interesting because things feed into the media, you see, about this. You know, there was, um, there was, no, f there was no fingerprints on the knife. Mm -hmm. So um, somebody, a certain journalist who was intimate with the Kelly saga then reported that there was gaffer tape on the knife. And then the, you know, the Attorney General decided to release some documents, then it became apparent that there, w there wasn't any gaffer tape on the knife. So there's no, 
There's no sensible reason why there should be no fingerprints on that knife. But the point is, when they found David Kelly's body, nobody in the country knew whether he'd been assassinated or he'd been murdered. Nobody knew. And um, naturally, because of his position, there were people on the ground when they discovered him who were part of the intelligence community. I mean, they, I've heard the CIA were there. I wouldn't be at all surprised if MI5 and MI6 were there. I mean, I expect they were. And the third man is, I'm, I have no proof. Mm. No one has any proof. But the third man, I suspect, was, a, um, was, an, intelligence, was an intelligence officer. And um, there were no fingerprints on the knife, because I think it's extremely likely that that intelligence officer went through um, David Kelly's pockets and belongings and first of all examined the, the scene to see if there was anything that belonged to the intelligence community, to see if there was anything the intelligence community wanted to hold back before it, before it went um, into, uh, into police hands in the public domain. And if he'd handled the knife, there could have been fingerprints on the knife that subsequently could have identified himself and other intelligence officers. So he couldn't, he couldn't leave those traces. And there's a, there's a parallel example for this, which is Gareth Williams, who is, a, like Kelly, another Welshman, who was the young spy who was found uh, zipped up in a bag in Pimlico two years ago. And um, they were absolutely in, in a MI6 safe house, as it happened. Mm. And there's ab there were absolutely no fingerprints in the entire flat. In fact, in fact, they'd removed the doorknobs so there couldn't be fingerprints on the doorknobs. And that's, and that's simply because the fingerprints of intelligence officers don't belong in civilian police files. It's, not gonna, it's never, ever going to happen. So wherever these officers walk, you know, the world they belong to means wherever these officers of the security service or the secret intelligence service walk, they will wipe up behind them. And that leaves... You know, that, that doesn't exactly you know, help elucidate a mm. mystery. That, that, only, that only makes things uh, stranger and harder to figure out, but I think that's the you know, demonstrable reality. So the fingerprints is a one case. There's the missing dental records. We don't know what happened there. In his dental surgery, um, one of the partners of his dental surgery reported to the police that his she, she looked at his dental file um, the day that they found the body, and it wasn't in the, wasn't in the file, and it mysteriously reappeared. His dental records mysteriously appeared three days later. And apparently there was a window open in the, in the records room, so who knows. But, but um, God, I don't want to, to, you know, mm. don't want to give too much away, but he, he was under a lot, there's a reason why his dental records may have been removed. There's a procedural reason why his dental records may have been. So what they do is tidy up what they're looking to is any sort of clue or any kind of evidence yeah. that they will go through yes. scrupulously and remove everything that could yeah. possibly... Like a steamroller. Yes, yes, quite. I mean, what, did, what was the official cause of death? Was it the loss of blood because of the, the injury to the wrist or was it, uh, oh, were there drugs involved? Did he, was it both? What, I was, what did I, the final... I suspect, no, I, I, um, the, the exact cause of death... Um, Escapes me now. There, there may be there may be someone in the audience who who knows. Most of the most of the um, activists about Kelly are, are medical professionals, and that's what they have the biggest problem with. Is I think is the is the cause of death, and um, I think it's a, a stopped heart basically, which doesn't help us a great deal. Brought about by um, loss of by I mean I've got this in the wrong order. Brought about by blood loss and um, an overdose of um, 
copraximol and exacerbated by some sort of hardening or furrying mm. of, the, um, of the artery. Of the artery yeah. uh, but there's no definite, they can't say definitely what the cause of death, but these are, are these suggestions, are they theories or are they well, I definite, are they been accepted as yeah, well, I the think, real cause I think, of death? I think, I mean, I, well, they've been obviously not accepted mm. by some and accepted yeah. by others. So when you start this, we'll have to, you know, get on to 2008, 2000, whenever you start, 2010 years later, perhaps, whenever you started to write this, and you found a series of closed doors and people who won't speak to you. Yes. I, I, some people mm. would speak to me and I was amazed that they would. Some people wouldn't speak to me at all and had never spoken to anyone. Some people would start to speak to me and they would say something amazing. And I, you know, I would be on the cusp of finding something really exciting mm. out. And then they would break off contacts. I, they'd never answer the phone or reply to an email ever again. Mm. Uh, and um, you know, there's, a, there's a, you know, there's a, it's a cliff face. There's a, there's a, it's, a, it's like, you know, trying to break through a, a monolith. There's mm. nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. But you know, you can't read too much into silence. But silence is itself a sound. You know, if if there is a huge cloaking silence over certain aspects of. Um, Kelly's working life and the mo you know and his final months and weeks, then that silence is indicative of something. I'm not sure that silence is indicative of decency. I'm not sure that silence is indicative. You know, not not at all. Not from all quarters, anyway. Mm. Not sure it's um, indicative of um, you know a desire, a decency, or a desire for a, a quiet life. I think sometimes it's a, it's um, you know it's a it's a it's a cloak. Did you ever feel yourself uh, under any kind of threat? Did you ever sense, I don't know, somebody following you, tapping your phone, uh, looking into your records, your live? David, uh, David Aranovich um, has written a book called Voodoo Histories, which is a, a sort of a criticism of conspiracy theory. Mm. And um, I, I don't think David Aranovich has called me a conspiracy theorist, but he wrote that one of the symptoms of a conspiracy theorist is they always claim to have been under surveillance, mm. they claim to be endangered. He wrote that in Voodoo Histories, and then I think three years later, Edward Snowden decided to blow the whistle on the NSA, and we found out, guess what? Everyone's under surveillance. <laughs> you know, it becomes slightly, becomes slightly redundant. I, 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 um, I, I had something strange go on, but I have no idea if it was who it was or if it was just a blip. I, I <coughs> as I was writing the book, as I was finishing the book, there is a, um, there's a, there's a, there, as I say, there's a community of Kelly activists who, uh, <laughs> who are campaigning for an inquest, mm. and um, and they were able to read chapters of my book before I'd finished reading it. So, as I was still finishing the mm. book, my final chapters were circulating as PDFs on the internet, which I thought was strange. Yes, but you know, that, there's any, there's. Um, the, that could just be. There's any number mm. of reasons for that. I, I I can't pretend my IT security is absolutely watertight. That could have been a 14-year-old kid in Minnesota who just mm. heard about me and wanted to have a go. But uh, no, I haven't. Um, I haven't had the knock on the door in the middle of the night. I'm, I, I'd, yeah. re I, I'd really. I wouldn't mind a honey trap. <laughs> so, um, well, have a good you know, look at the audience. You never know. <laughs> a few Matahari's out there yeah. ready to. Yeah. Now, you go to the end of the book. You go to the scene of the the death, I would mm. say crime or murder or suicide, whatever it is. Did you, and you look at this, I suppose it's a, a wonderful image of a tranquil English countryside with 
cows cropping the grass and clip-clop of you know, gymkhanas and what have you. It's a sort of Middle England ideal. Did it sort of, did you come across, it was a sudden realisation, sudden epiphanies up on the hill where Dr. Kelly had died. What did you take away from that experience? Well, it was a very interesting day for me um, because on the ninth anniversary of his death, I, I, I took the walk from his old house to Harrowdown Hill. I, I mirrored his movements as, as far as we know. And, uh, and I stood on Harrowdown Hill and I, as a writer, you begin to ask yourself, well, why are you doing this? You know, because writers, they take something that interests them, they, they take something that haunts them, that drives them, and they turn it into work, what writers do. And um, you know, if I wasn't a writer, I think it would have been, <laughs> maybe it still is, but if I wasn't a writer, I think that would have been an extremely strange thing mm -hmm. to do. And I, I stood in Harrowdown Hill and I just waited. And according to Hutton, Kelly might have been there for nine hours. I stood there for an hour. I was completely on my own in the middle of Harrowdown Hill. I just tried to imagine, um, tried to imagine what could possibly, you know, what could possibly have been um, going through his head and why he ended up there. Why Harrowdown Hill? Why that thicket? Why that copse? Why that hill? Why that day? And, um, you know, a lot of these things are unanswerable. But um, what's, what, was, what was telling to me is that um, there is a there is a sort of a professor of suicide um, for, uh, who is a, who runs a psychology uh, unit at Oxford University. Um, he's shamefully his name escapes me at the moment, but it will return to me shortly. Um, and um, his when Hutton asked him to justify a suicide, his first answer was Harrowdown Hill. He said it was where you'd go to to typical place where you'd go to if you wanted to kill yourself. It's beautiful, it's secluded, and it's undisturbed. And, um, and for what it's worth, just personally, that made a huge amount of sense to me at the time, for what it's worth, just personally. Mm. And there's a lot of people that have trouble with the Harrowdown Hill narrative. I mean, I heard secondhand, so this isn't authoritative, but I heard secondhand that the Dave Bartlett, who was the male paramedic who attended Kelly at Harrowdown Hill, is convinced to this day that that man did not die on Harrowdown Hill. It's someone, mm. someone took him there, which, which is, you know, that's, you know, that's an authoritative opinion. But, uh, and I have multiple reasons for the conclusions that I make. But I certainly don't think anyone who was covering up a, and this is, a, this is just what I felt on the day. This isn't a substantial conclusion. But, no one who's covering up, I don't think anyone who's covering up a suicide, uh, covering up, covering up a, an assassination, or anyone who wants to deliberately project or engineer or fashion a suicide, I don't think any, anybody in any intelligence agency is going to have the sensitivity and the knowledge of the local area to take David's body and lay it in the middle of this unobserved, little-known hilltop mm. copse. And it was, a, it was a place where someone to my mind, would choose for, for an ending. Yeah. So, Good. Anyway, I'm sure we've got lots of questions from our audience, so let's get started right away. We have the microphone handy, and we have a hand up already, so here comes the mic. I'd like to keep your hand up, please. Lovely. Mr. Lewis, you say um, that David Kelly had an estranged section of his family. You also say that people hadn't seen him drunk for years. 
suggesting to me that perhaps he had been drunk in the past. Could this man have been flawed in some way and his death was very inconvenient at a very difficult time for the diligence service? I, he could have been. That's a possibility. I mean, I suspect. I don't think it's any, I don't think it's any bad thing to, to, to get drunk once in a while. And I don't think he was speaking ill of the dead to say David Kelly may have occasionally got pissed. But, um, but I was very intrigued by the Hutton Inquiry because the Hutton Inquiry was largely, the Hutton Inquiry was largely pre-scripted. You know, it was, it was like, a, like a lot of inquiries, it was, it was dressed up to look like an adversarial legal battle with barristers for either side. Not really what it was. And, um, and one of the questions that was asked of Kelly, I think at least once, was did he have a problem drinking? Did he have a drinking problem? That came up. And the answer was no. But I thought it was significant that it was asked because it wouldn't have been asked had the government barrister not believed that there was some credibility for him having a, an alcohol problem. And, you know, being a drinking man myself, I'm always suspicious of complete abstinence. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah. But um, so uh, there's. Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he did drink a bit. I mean, I don't. I don't know if. I don't know how. Um, I don't know how how much is sensible to read into that. Thank you. And yeah, yes, hand up at the back there. One of the quiet people in the back row. <laughs> I'm puzzled that you seem unsure of the cause of death on the death certificate. Oh yes. That well. That's. Um, I think that's part, I apologise for that. Um, it's, uh, it's part and parcel of the fact that I tried not to let the end uh, eclipse his, um, his, uh, his life. And it's widely known, and I did know it, and the cause of death I, I, can't, I can't recite. But, it, it, but it, you know, to attempt it, it's um, a heart failure brought about by blood loss, copraxamol and thickening of the arteries, I, you know, that'll, that'll stand correction, but I mean that's largely I think what it is. Right, thank you. Yes, hand up here. Here comes the mic, and then. Um, I've always had concerns about his death, and one thing that's always confused me is why his family have been so quiet. Because if, his, if there were concerns, presumably his wife, his daughters, would have too had those concerns, and surely they would have been saying something, unless there'd been something done to make them keep quiet. And I've wondered yeah. if you had any comments on that. That's, well, there, I find it, I'm, I've been worried by it too, been very worried about it, because, you know, in the months up to publication, I would have, I was eager, I would have spoken to them off the record. I was, I was, was really eager to make sure that, you know, they, they knew what I was doing and they could have a, totally off the record, they could have a word with me about it and put me right on anything, and there were aspects that I didn't have to write about. And, um, and I didn't get anywhere, and, um, and, I, and I didn't get anywhere. And there are two arguments for that that you can make, which is that um, the suicide of a key family member is deeply traumatic, and those who are left behind often feel, some psychologists maintain, often feel a sense of betrayal and anger and inadequacy, which means that they're never going to talk about it. Um, but the problem with silence is that you don't know what's on the other side of silence. A lot can lie on the other side of silence, and you don't know. And you can understand the British media being what it is. You could understand perfectly well why they decided never to talk to the media ever again, and why maybe you know, they didn't want to talk to anybody ever again. But the, 
the silence, the, you know, the, the, the silence is deafening of the, of the Kelly family. And I've role-played it in my head, and I'm sure there are people in this room who've role-played it in their head. You know, I, and um, you know, if, if, David, if, if David had been my father, I would have, I would have been very angry. And you know, even if I felt that, um, you know, even though, I, even, though I, if, even if I felt that his, you know, even, though, even if I felt my father's suicide was somehow a consequence of my own conduct as a family member, that would have only probably driven me further to make sure and investigate that every aspect of a possible murder was, um, um, was removed. Uh, but um, we don't know. We don't know about the Kelly family. We don't know about the Kelly family. I mean, it's been said that um, they've behaved with tremendous dignity, and uh, I can't argue against that um, at all. And, um, but yeah, that's the haunting thing with silence, is we don't know. We don't know what's on the other side of it. And it's weird, because um, that silence I'm not sure that silence is good for them. I don't, I don't know. I, I think if they've decided not to talk to the world about David Kelly ever again, I don't know to what extent if they've decided never to talk about their father ever again, if they've decided never to talk about their husband ever again to anyone. I don't know how healthy that can be as a process for them to live their lives. And I don't know, um, I don't know who was around them um, in the days after Kelly's death. And I'm sure somebody was. I don't know who was around them from the Secret Intelligence Service or from the Ministry of Defence or from the Home Office. And we don't know. And we don't know. Thank you. Now, there's a hand up in the front row here. Thank you. Mr Lewis, would you agree that the Hutton report was a whitewash and Number 10 couldn't believe their luck? But the Butler report was different. It was written, the trouble with it, it was written in Mandarin speak. But if you can decipher the Mandarin speak, there is a section which makes clear that the original report by the Joint Intelligence Committee was altered. Several severe warnings about the unreliability of the evidence that there were weapons of mass destruction were left out. In other words, in other words the original report of the JIC accorded with what Dr. Kelly said to Gilligan. And as you say, uh, number 10 went ballistic. And the reason that these warnings were left out was that Blair had given Andrew, uh, what's the spin doctor's name? Campbell. Andrew Campbell. Andrew Campbell. He had given him managerial control of civil servants, and he was able to exercise the whole force of number 10 on the JIC to leave out these caveats. So the dossier that was presented to Parliament was not quite falsified, but changed from a neutral a summation of uh, the in intelligence into a political argument for war. Yes, uh, would you agree with the gentleman's yeah, conclusions? Yeah, I, I, I would like that, 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 that oh. chimes with me. That's, uh, I'm sim entirely sympathetic to uh, and in agreement with 99% of that. There's a, in fact, Alistair Campbell started massaging intelligence um, during the uh, Kosovo intervention. There's a pattern for him for the Downing Street press office intervening at a senior level with, uh, with um, what could be called military propaganda. But, um, but yeah, uh, but Butler was, the, the Hutton was a whitewash, but it was, Butler was a step in the right direction. As for Chilcot, we'll, 
who knows? Well, we ever know. Is that, is that ever going to be released, the findings of the Chilcot? Well, I, I'd be very, I mean, I, I'd be very surprised if they came back in within, you know, three or four or five years. And the bloody, the bloody last bloody Sunday tribunal was, what, nine years? Oh, easily, yeah. Easily. And, and, this, and that was, uh, this is about something, I don't mean to uh, diminish Bloody Sunday at all, but this is about something far more, uh, this is uh, something happening on a far grander scale than Bloody Sunday. And it wouldn't surprise me if it was five, six, seven years before it came back. Um, and there's, there's going to be a huge amount, there's going to be a huge amount of manoeuvring behind the scenes as Chilcot clears. Richard Dearlove, who is in charge of um, MI6, is already briefing off the record that if Chilcot doesn't put the record straight, which is a sinister phrase to use, mm. that if Chilcot doesn't put this record straight, then Dearlove will sanction the facts to be brought out to make sure that Chilcot, you know, the Chilcot report is understood adequately, which is basically, which is deeply dishonest. Because if, if, if there are facts, that would allow Chilcott to report accurately, they should be supplied to Chilcott during his inquiry. And the idea that this man is withholding facts um, only suggests to me the, the threat, the risk, that manufactured intelligence will be retrospectively added to Iraq, to the MI6 files, years after the war, to make it look as if there was something we could be certain about, you know, which we couldn't at the time. More questions, please. Yes, two hands up there. Side by side, very nice. Um, hello, I believe that a group of senior medics consultants have looked at the death of David Kelly and have decided that they think it's unlikely that it was suicide. And they are pressing for an inquest and have been doing so for many years. I uh, wonder what you think about that. Well, I, I think um, I'm not opposed at all um, obviously, I'm not a medical uh, man. Medical opinion seems divided on Kelly to me. And I believe that if it is possible for him to have died from a copraxable uh, overdose and for, from a slit wrist, if that's possible, that seems to me more likely that it was suicide than murder. Now, um, dead men should get inquests. And dead men who work for the intelligence community at times of great political controversy should definitely get inquests. And I'm not opposed to the campaign for an inquest, but I don't feel like I can lend it my real support because of my... I don't feel like I can lend it my real support because I, deep down I, I believe it was suicide and, um, and I don't think it would allow us... I don't think it would shed any light on anything, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I'm sympathetic to that campaign. And it's important for everyone to reach you know, their own understanding as to what happened with Kelly and to make sure adequate avenues have... Um, have you know have, have been chased down? But I've spent no, you know, I've spent a few years writing this book, and I'm and, I, and I'm I'd, and I'm happy with my um, uh, with my own conclusion. But I I, I wouldn't I would I wouldn't criticise them or castigate them for a, for a minute. I just their campaign is their own, and I'd I, I I'd like to I'd like to move. I mean I I've done my I've made my contribution, so to speak. Now, could you pass the mic to your neighbour, please? Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a question about, um, linked to the one that came before, about the role of the civil service and how the politicians and the spin doctors um, control. I 
just retired from the civil service. I had the same grade as, as David Kelly. I've worked overseas in war-torn countries. And I can tell you that these types of things, I mean, David Kelly was extremely important and his role, you know, dead mm. and alive was very important. But under the cover of ordinariness, an awful lot of very bad things are going on. And I think, I think John le Carre's most recent book is, is I, haven't, I haven't read it yet. Well, you must. Mm. It's, uh, it's a very good book, as well as being uh, sort of relevant to this. But I think the, 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 the culture of the civil service has changed enormously in the last decade under Blair and continuing now, I think more crassly and stupidly now, but uh, I think you know, it accelerated under Blair's administration. What happens is that I think people in general don't understand that the civil service that we think we've got is disappearing. Mm. It's becoming increasingly politicized and managerial. And that the experts and the advisors and the people who work in all areas, whether it's what should happen in a school classroom to you know, who should control um, what should control British companies in, in the Congo, for example, which is more my area. All these things are coming out of the area where somebody listens to people who know and become massaged into what is convenient that day, that week. And the pressures that this puts civil servants under are absolutely massive. So on the one hand, what happened to David Kelly is an individual disaster and a political, that, that means for everybody, tragedy. But I think we should be very, very certain that those stresses and strains and worries and you know, distortions are happening every day in all government departments. No, I, I agree absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's part of a... Um, it's it's part of a system, isn't it, where A, the news is what we tell you the news is, and B, well, we, we measure the results and the, the results are our goals and our goals are the results. So it becomes a self-fulfilling circle. I mean, it's a, the, 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 ro the, the role and the destiny of, of um, government departments and, and the, s the civil servants in general is, does have a direct bearing on this. Uh, earlier in the year, um, the BBC did a programme called The Reunion where they got Greg Dyke, Andrew Gilligan, uh, Jeff Hoon and uh, Tom Kelly, which I is, heard um, it, yeah. the Downing Street um, press officer involved, to debate the 45-minute claim and David Kelly, and it was uh, it was a very gripping mm. 45 minutes of radio, and it ended with Tom Kelly saying this. It ended with Tom Kelly saying, "Well, I think there's a lot to be learnt from Iraq and the way we handled Iraq and David Kelly, and I think it's important that we should talk about it. But I'm certainly not going to talk about it if you criticise us for judgments we've made." or make personal criticisms about our, our sense of judgment, which I think is a man who profound, is in profound denial about how democracy is supposed to work and what a civil servant is supposed to work and what he's done. And, that's, and he's in profound denial about what he's done. And that's the ultimate payoff for all this, is that we're in a room here where I think everyone is probably broadly sympathetic. And Blair can go on to uh, daytime television and say, oh, the argument over Iraq will rumble on forever. And the truth is, it won't. And the truth is, there isn't an argument. There's just a small, powerful group of people who are responsible and are very vocal about it, and they will defend the Iraq war until they die. And once they die, there will be no argument. That's the end. It is the end, and I think I, it's a very good point to end. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Robert Lewis.
Now, if Robert can avoid the honey traps by the Mataharis in the audience, he will be signing copies of this gripping book in the main bookshop, which is just out the doors. Turn right, and it's about the third on the right. It's been a really terrific session. I can't say I congratulate you, because I don't think that would be quite appropriate in the circumstances, but I'm full of admiration for the work that you've done. Dark Actors is absolutely unputdownable, if I may say so, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.